You open your scriptures to Psalm 5. Begin with a simple question. Are you frustrated this morning? And if you are, can you identify the source of your frustration? Can you like put a name on it? If you were to write it out, actually write it out or punch it into a little device, I am frustrated or I have been frustrated because... Many of God's people struggle with doubt and frustration at the seeming passivity of God against the wicked. And I say seeming because Scripture tempers what seems to be with reality. Bitterness is simply a continued negative response to a seeming negative experience. Now that negative experience may truly be evil and it may involve true sin and the wickedness of others, but bitterness is a continued negative response within our own heart towards that situation. And so however we recognize or identify frustration and we we take it down to the root, to its root source, we have to remember that, that most often Our problems are never really around us. They are where? They are in us. Jesus taught this. Out of the abundance of your heart come these things. Right? Paul Tripp, in writing to pastors in a book called Dangerous Calling, actually touches on something that I don't believe is simply isolated to pastors. I want to read what he writes in his book. He says, I have talked with many pastors whose real struggle isn't first with the hardships of ministry, the lack of appreciation and involvement of people, or difficulties with fellow leaders. No, the real struggle they are having, one that is very hard for a pastor to admit, is with God. What has caused ministry to become hard and burdensome is disappointment with and anger at God. It's hard to represent someone you have come to doubt. It's hard to encourage others to functionally trust someone you're not sure you trust. It is nearly impossible in ministry to give away what you yourself do not have. It's a very transparent and open statement about people whose real struggle is disappointment with God. It doesn't even sound right to verbalize that because we, we, we come here, we see one another on a Sunday morning, we gather before uh, these symbols that represent Christ, and it's so easy to have a, a false dichotomy between what our real struggle is in our heart and what we say the real struggle is. Here's the hope. David and the psalmists struggled with God. Habakkuk struggled with God. God's people, historically, in every age, have struggled with disappointment with God. And if we don't identify that as the source, we're going to create these sort of scarecrow 
enemies and start dealing with our anger unbiblically towards the wrong source. Psalm 5 is actually going to help us here. Psalm 5 is very real. Like the third and the fourth psalm, it holds forth encouragement to those who suffer adversity and even those who suffer adversity from the hands of evil people. Evil and its deadly effects often eclipse the full joy of the godly on this earth. And we know that, don't we? And this isn't even something where I have to build a case. We know that immediately that that is the struggle within our own heart. And if we don't understand this, even as parents, we're going to fail to help shepherd our children through the struggles they will have at a very young age when they begin to doubt the goodness of God amidst a very evil culture. This psalm falls into five natural sections. Look at Psalm 5, verse 1. He begins with a morning prayer for God's help. Now, we, we often tease that we're not morning people. I love the mornings. I'm not a 9.30 p.m. and after person. I just spent a few days with someone who is. We were out at a cabin on the western slope, and it was his birthday. And I asked him what he wanted to do for his birthday other than catch fish, which only he did that day. And it was several other of our men here. And he wanted to start playing Risk at about 9.30 at night. So the best gift I could give him, and I've never played Risk. My boys have. I haven't. And we started playing, and that risk game went until about 1 o'clock in the morning. Happy birthday. That'll happen one time a year. <laughs> um, I love the mornings. I love the stillness of heart, the calmness, the warmth of the sun, the sound of the birds. Whether in Africa or Eastern America or Western America, mornings offer a renewed sense of hope. Look at verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. My King and my God, for to You do I pray. O Lord, in the morning You hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for You and watch. And folks, it's morning. And God will hear your voice this morning. And I love how the psalmist kind of seems to forget the formalities of prayer while he's in affliction. Doesn't God do that? Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept your word. The psalmist asks for God to hear both his spoken words, his words, his voice, and his inaudible emotional expressions, groaning and cries. And for some of you, this is an accurate description of your prayer life. Right now, as you find yourself in the midst of reality, there are these audible prayers, and there are these pains and disappointments which you cannot put words to. And the psalmist says, Lord, Hear me. We see an example of this in the Old Testament. First Samuel, Hannah is praying. It says as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, 
How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. You know, like we saw last week when Samuel about chose David's older brother. Sometimes those in spiritual leadership, sometimes those occupying spiritual positions wrongly interpret other people and events. But God doesn't. Verse 15, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. That's what the psalmist is doing. Hear my words and hear my groanings. And the Spirit helps us, Romans 8.26, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Is that where you're at this morning? Here's the hope. God hears that. When you cry out to Him like that, He hears. Verse 2, he uses sort of this title, two titles, My King and My God. Here's the psalmist in affliction, groaning, crying, and he acknowledges that God is the King, the Lord of his circumstances. Do you know that God is the sovereign one who has designed every circumstance in your life and every person that enters into your story? God allows that. And sometimes, even as Habakkuk will have to struggle through, sometimes he allows evil people to come in and take part of your story. And it is truly wicked. But when you cry out to him, he hears. It's an amazing description. As I read that, I thought of Thomas, who was not with the twelve when Jesus made his first appearance. So Thomas, in disappointment and disillusionment, questions the other disciples. No, you haven't really seen him. I mean, I saw him hanging on a cross. And I won't believe unless what? I'm not going to believe your report unless... Not even, not even unless I see the nails in his hands and the wound in his side, but unless I touch them. The hopelessness of Thomas is restored eight days later when in John 20, verse 26, it says eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, and I love how he introduces himself to the disciples, peace. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, looks right at Thomas. No, Jesus wasn't there. According to Thomas, Jesus wasn't there when Thomas was doubting in hopelessness the resurrection of the Lord. And, and I love, you can just almost notice the, the, the glance of grace. He looks over at Thomas and he says, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. It does seem there are times of unbelief, even for a believer, which is temporary, which is brought on by hopelessness and disappointment. How often did Jesus have to come and say, O ye of little faith? He rebuked them for their hardness of heart and their unbelief, but they're believers. Thomas, put your finger here. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. The psalmist prays, My King and my God. My Sovereign One. I'm going to bow before You, the King of life's circumstances. 
the king of reality, the king of hope and of grace. Verse 3, the time is specified as morning. The change from darkness to light brings this renewed sense of hope. It's, this is captured in Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Okay, so what did you do last night? What did you watch last night? What did you think on last night? What words did you say yesterday? What came out of your mouth? How are your relationships? His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. This morning, His mercies never come to an end. Great is your faithfulness. But we haven't been faithful. Great is His faithfulness. But we have not kept our promises, our oaths. We have not walked in His ways completely. But His mercies never end. Great is His faithfulness. So as we approach the Lord's table, it is not our goodness. It is not even that we have lived perfectly in the last seven days. But His faithfulness is great. His mercies are new every morning. There is hope in one sinless one whose name is Jesus Christ. Psalm 30, verse 5, His anger is but for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And folks, it's morning. And His mercies never fail. So having prayed, having worshipped, notice what the psalmist does next. Verse 3, he watches. He waits for a response from God. He knows that Yahweh is King and God. And now he's going to highlight the holy character of God. Look at verse 4. And he's going to highlight the holy character of God with an affirmation of God's hatred for evil. Verse 4. So he waits, he watches, he offers a sacrifice, he prays, he groans. Verse 4, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So as you're crying out to God in the morning, leaning on His mercies, which are new every day, great is His faithfulness, it is helpful for us to remind ourselves each morning of God's holy nature and His hatred of evil. His hatred of... We've got to personalize this. It can't just be the psalmist. It can't just be others. His hatred of our evil. And these are the people that now find entrance into God's presence as they confess His holy character, that He is God and He is King. Three phrases express God's absolute hatred of evil. Look down at Psalm 5. I want you to see these three phrases. Verse 4. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Now, God does delight in things, and He takes delight in His people, but He cannot delight in wickedness. Verse 5. You hate. Okay, so He does not delight. Now it's going to get stronger. It goes from not delighting to hating. Verse 6. The Lord, and it even seems to get a degree stronger, the Lord abhors. He loathes. He despises. And God's people would do well every morning as we cry out to God to remember that God hates evil. 
There are also three negative statements that emphasize the seriousness of the situation. Look back at verse 4. So since he hates evil, evil may not dwell with him. The boastful, verse 5, shall not stand before him. In verse 6, he destroys those who speak lies. We have a low view of sin. We have a low view of our sin because we often have a low view of God. A high view of God. An understanding of His holiness. An understanding of how He must react. How He must respond to sin will give us an equally careful view of sin in our life. Seven words describe the exceeding sinfulness of sinners. Look at verse 4. Do you see the word? What's the first word that actually highlights the exceeding sinfulness of sinners? Wickedness. Verse 4, evil. Verse 5, boastful. Verse 5, evildoers. Verse 6, lies. Verse 6, bloodthirsty. Not necessarily the one that has killed someone, though that is surely included, but one who twists and perverts justice at the cost of human lives. So you can actually legislate something away from literal bloodshed, but actually have part in the taking of other people's lives. And God abhors that. So then what can we expect from God? If this is His holy nature, what can we expect from Him? Six phrases describe God's posture towards them. Let me just kind of mention these. He does not delight. Evil does not dwell. The boastful shall not stand. He hates all evildoers. Notice it's not just the sin. It's the sinner in this case. He destroys those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful person. And this is a disturbing snapshot of sin and the sinner and God's posture towards them. So what hope do we have? And we started, we started off talking about disappointment. What hope is there? Where is grace? Can you think of anyone who has done things on this list? Can you think of anyone who has written Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, who goes by the name David, who has done any of these things? Yes. What about the Apostle Paul? Did he do any of these things? Yes. Here is grace. Even as we work through this catalog of sin... There is grace because there is one whom David and the Apostle Paul point to. There is one who is, and I want you to hear this, sinless. Isaiah saw this when he saw this great vision of the suffering servant and he said, He had done no violence. By the way, that's on that list. And there was no deceit in his mouth. That's verse 6. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's where the grace is. It's not that we have escaped this catalog of sin. Somehow we, we have only done one, or we haven't done any of the ones explicitly mentioned. The hope is there is one who is sinless. And we can have His righteousness given to us, imputed to us, as He carries our sin and dies as a sacrifice on our behalf. That's hope. 
And God expects His people to disassociate then from their former ways from which they have been rescued. So look at the next section, verse 7. The psalmist here is going to talk about salvation, worship, and guidance. So, though evil people are excluded from God's presence, they will not dwell with Him, they will not stand before Him, that does not mean that there are a group of people that are admitted into God's presence based upon their goodness. Did you follow that? The evil people are excluded based upon their wickedness. But God's people are not included based upon their goodness. It is still based upon grace. Look at verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your what? What does it say? What does God's Word say right there? But I, according to the abundance of your steadfast love, your unfailing love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. That's the psalmist's entrance before God, and that is your entrance before God. It is based upon what? God's unfailing Love. For God loved the world and He gave He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have what? Eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but He sent His Son into the world so that we might have life. So we can pray this. We can claim this as well. It is according to God's steadfast love. What is the appropriate response? Oh yeah, well I've heard the gospel ever since I was four. No, there is an appropriate response to the gospel, if you would, that includes reverential fear. Those who repent and believe, there is this fear of bowing down. That's what he says. For the psalmist, there are these reverential forms. Verse 7, I'm going to bow down towards God in His holy temple. But it also includes a request to do something. This is what true believers look like. Look at verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in Your righteousness. Why? Because of my enemies. Make Your way straight before me. Level out the obstacles so that my testimony, a righteous walk, will be a testimony and a rebuke to the enemies who are observing me. Yes, they've tried to fracture me. Yes, they've tried to hurt. They truly did intend evil. God, make my way straight before me. Now, the psalmist is going to move into the next stanza, and he's going to remind us that an evil heart has evil effects and comes to a destructive end. Look at verse 9. He's going to talk about evil and justice. And isn't that really where some of our disappointment stands with God? That somehow as we watch and we observe and somehow as we receive some of the pain of a fallen, cursed world, we question either the goodness or the all-powerfulness of God. And our disappointment is with Him. The psalmist is going to remind us that God is just, but it's going to be according to His timetable. Look at verse 9. For there is no truth in their mouths. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Now look at this prayer request. Look at verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. 
Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now, we're, not, we're not used to these kinds of prayer requests. But I want to remind us, this is not in any way a selfish request because it is extremely and radically God-centered. This prayer is fueled by people's rebellion against who? Against God. There is a New Testament passage, and I'm going to have you turn there in a little bit, that actually quotes Psalm 5. And it's going to talk about their throat being an open grave. You think about that. I don't know, I mean, burials in more modern countries are kind of aesthetically covered up. Where some of our folks have lived and where we lived, if, if somebody died, you actually had to take the body, the corpse, to a building. And, and, and in some cases, it was not refrigerated. And the stench of death in that place is overwhelming. And sometimes we have friends who took part in the washing of that body, a ceremonial washing after that body had died, and the wrapping and then the delivering of that body. In some cases, people are called, family, friends, or pastors are called to come retrieve a body after it had been decomposing for several days. It is an unmistakable smell when you get near death. And it's incredible that that is what is compared to in the lies and the flattery of the wicked. It is the stench of immoral decomposition that is found in the throat. Remember what I said. Sometimes we have a low view of sin because we have a low view of God. You have a high view of God and the psalmist will write under inspiration that the stench of death in lies and flattery comes out of the mouth. It's in their throat. It's unmistakable. It's evil. Dead things are there. So he prays because they are destructive, because they are not turning from their ways. He prays that their destruction would come upon themselves. One, one, one commentator said, he doesn't pray that lightning bolts come out of the sky and immediately devour them. He simply, pray, he simply prays that they would become their own casualty, that they would stop destroying other people and they would destroy themselves so that they can no longer harm anyone else. That's what he's praying. By the way, the psalmist is praying out of a sense of what? Justice. As we image God, we desire what? Justice. As we image God, how can we respond to our enemies? How can we respond to those who have truly hurt us? We pray for them. And Jesus also adds, you love them. Because God will give a just verdict and sentence because he is the holy and righteous king, my king and my God. And so I'm going to look to you and I'm going to pray for justice. I'm going to pray that they are their own casualty. I'm going to pray that they stop harming and destroying other people because when you get near them and you hear their words, it is death in their body. That's what he says. Their innermost being, verse 9, is destruction. 
I love how he ends, and this is how we have to end. We need to end here because this is hopeless, isn't it? This is sad. This is heavy. Look at verse 11. He moves from evil and justice to safety, joy, and blessing. So if you feel the weight of that, and there's purposely a weight that Psalm 5 places upon us, look at verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you, what's the next word? Rejoice. Why do some of our hymns not simply sound like uh, meditative confessions? Sometimes they're celebratory. Because those who have found refuge in God rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Why? Verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now what began as a distressed cry, even as Habakkuk's prayer, three cycles of prayer, it became with disappointment with God and even anger and arguing with God has now turned into rejoicing. I love this. Look at verse 11. If you have found refuge in Him, if you have found safety, if you have been rescued, if you have been, here's the word we're, we're most comfortable with, if you have been saved by God, you will rejoice. Let them a little word there. I want you to look at it. Let them ever sing. Let them forever sing. It's the longest duration of time possible. It's the longest duration of time imaginable, even unimaginable. I was just talking with one of my children, and they told me how they tried to... You ever do this? You lay on your bed at night in the calmness of the night, and you try to think about forever. And sometimes your mind like gives you this glimpse like, How is that even possible? It just goes on and on and on and on and on. You just almost shut your own mind down. I mean, eternity is, for us, because we have a birthday, is almost unimaginable. And what we are given a glimpse to here from the psalmist as he's looking forward to a promised one, to a God and King, to a Savior, a Rescuer, we will be the ones who have found refuge, safety in God, who will rejoice forever. Two beautiful pictures come as as, as God, as our refuge. Uh, first of all, that of a bird protectively covering her chicks with its wings. We have a little bunny in our backyard who we call Jerry. And Jerry was out there this morning. We thought Jerry was going to die a couple months ago because he doesn't look healthy. But he has chosen our yard. And I woke up this morning and Jerry's in the back. And when Jerry's in the back, I purposely don't let G2 and Wende out. These are my little white Jack Russells because they are very fond of Jerry. And so when, when Jerry's in the backyard, I protect him. This is a picture of God that emerges. And spread your protection over them. The picture of a bird with her chicks. But there's another picture that emerges as well. You cover him with favor as with a, as with a shield. You have the picture of a loving mother protecting her chicks. You have the picture of a huge battle shield against the arrows of the enemy, whether human or spiritual. And when you find refuge in God like that, when God is the one who is protecting you, when God is the one who is your shield, you rejoice And when even though you are his enemy and you are a sinner and he sends his son to die for you and saves you, you will rejoice 
forever. But that's not our story here, is it? Because our story here involves disappointment and discouragement and conflict. And the basis for our rejoicing, I want to be very clear, is not the impending destruction of the wicked. The basis for our rejoicing is, verse 11, all who take refuge in God are safe. In verse 7, it says, He bows down. So who are the righteous? Look at verse 11, the very last part. Those who love your name may exult in you. What does that mean to love God's name? Because honestly, I mean, yesterday I heard people take the Lord's name in vain. They use His name wrongly. Or you can have an overly repetitive praise chorus, which is just talking about Jesus, 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 Jesus. Is that loving God's name? Now, it may be appropriate in, in some song settings to have that repetition, but what does it mean to love His name? Here's what it means to love God's name. God has revealed Himself to us, and part of how He has done that is through His names and through His works. And a name reveals the character of a person. When you love God's name, you are actually saying, I accept what He has revealed about Himself. I love Him for who He is, whether it is holy, just, righteous, compassionate, kind, full of grace and truth. I'm going to bow down and accept the claims of who He says He is. He is my God and my King, and I'm going to bow down towards Him, and I love His name. Because regardless of my experiences and my hurt and the dark gloominess that shadows over my soul, I know He is just. And I love His name. They love the covenantal name Yahweh and desire fellowship with Him. Hold your place here and turn with me to Romans 3. Paul's going to quote Psalm 5 in Romans chapter 3. Paul's also going to go through a catalog of sin. He does this in Romans chapter 1. He does this in Romans chapter 3. And he's going to say in Romans 3, verse 10, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Now that was written in Ecclesiastes. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Look at verse 13, see if this sounds familiar now. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. That's Psalm 5. The venom of asps is under their lips. Well, then what hope is there? If none does good and none seeks after God and none happened to be at the right place and did all the right things, if there's no one out there that actually seeks after God, then what hope is there? I want you to go down all the way down to verse 20, Romans chapter 3. I mean, is our hope in just being religious? Is our hope in being born in Jerusalem? What is our hope? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And you've got to hear that. You do not get to go into God's presence because somehow you have been more moral or more religious or more precise in your understanding because none seek after God. 
By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been revealed. It's been clearly shown. How? Apart from the law. Not works, not law keeping. It's been revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it points to it, it proclaims it, it advertises it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you believe that? You have to believe the non-righteous part and then you have to believe in God's provision by faith. If you believe that, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, the turning away of God's wrath against sinners by means of a sacrifice, by a blood sacrifice, God's wrath is appeased, and by faith you can receive this gift of grace. It says that in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received, how? By faith. That's it. Not by, not by faith plus giving a lot of money to missions. Not by faith plus impeccable church attendance. Not by faith plus baptism and communion. By faith only is the gift. You add the slightest cost, it's no longer a gift. It is a gift. Go back to Psalm 5. Verse 11, those who love your name may or will exult in you. You may close your scriptures. I'm going to read three verses in preparation for the Lord's Supper. I just want to ask you this question. Do you know, do you rejoice in, do you celebrate his name? Do you have a biblical perspective of sin and God's hatred for sin? And do you exult in his name? Not just, oh, I was born a Christian. My parents are Christians. I've always been a Christian. It just seems to be the right thing to do. No. Has there been a, a, an understanding of sin and a turning away from it, exulting in the name of Jesus Christ by faith, receiving that gift? In Matthew, it says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why that name? For he will save his people from their sins. Do you exult in that name? There is no salvation, Luke writes in Acts, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you rejoice in that name? Are we passionate about proclaiming that name to the nations who have never heard of that name, not even as a swear word? Because that's why we're here. We're not here to feel good about ourselves that we attend church at least three Sundays out of the month. We're here on a mission to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ from our neighborhood to the nations. Paul writes this, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him... The name 
that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, Psalm 5, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Psalm 5, my God and my King, to the glory of God the Father. So regardless of the posture of your heart this morning, regardless of whether you're trapped in discouragement or you're even frustrated with God, which there is, a, there is room to be reverently struggling with God, just read the book of Habakkuk. And there is room, even in the psalmist's prayer, O soul, why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. This is written for believers. There is room for reverentially wrestling with God. As long as you come out on the right end and you confess and rejoice in Him, the morning gives this sense of renewed hope. And the gospel is this. None of us has sought after God. None of us has been religious enough. None of us has been good enough to be able to get into His presence. So He took the initiative and He sent His Son as a sacrifice to die on the cross for our sins. And He will declare you legally as righteous as Jesus Christ on this condition only, by faith. Believe. And you have that gift. That's what we celebrate this morning. The broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ and His shed blood. Let's pray. We will respond to this Revelation through song will actually ask why does fear remain in our heart? And the answer to that fear and that discouragement is going to be the saving grace of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your patience with us as we wrestle, as we work through frustration, sometimes even respond wrongly to it. Thank you that your love is unconditional. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Your mercies are new this morning. Your faithfulness is great. You have accepted us by the work of your Son through faith only. So we praise you for your grace. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, Lord, remove just mechanical habit from our heart and mind. And may we rejoice again that the free gift is Your Son, His broken body, His shed blood as a sacrifice for our sins so that being sinners, You look upon us and You see the righteousness of Christ. We praise You for this. Lord, if there's a little one here or an older one here, who just has not bowed before You in reverential fear receiving this gift of grace, would You give them the gift of Your conviction by Your Spirit and would this morning they call out to You by faith in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.